And we are finishing up. This is our last in our series. There's been eight messages um, in this series. And so we're finishing up chapter, uh, end of chapter 3 into chapter 4. Um, so the last portion of this. Uh, we'll conclude the, our series. And this book, uh, I, I trust, has been helpful to us to learn about waking up out of spiritual slumber that uh, God's recipe for waking us up out of spiritual slumber is to call us to look upon Him, to see Him. Uh, the very reason that we slumber is because we take our eyes off of Him, and when we get our eyes back on Him and His ways, it, it wakes us up. And so this final message, we'll be looking at this last section, it's entitled Wake Up Cynic. And uh, part of the reality for those in Malachi, Malachi's day is that they had lost sight of God, and they had uh, fallen into um, doubt. They replaced hope, really, with cynicism and spiritual slumber. And so God wanted to come and help them with that. And I think cynicism is, is a problem today as well. It's, it's actually a very significant problem in our culture. Uh, the author Jason Dusing, and the pastor and author, uh, has written a book about this. And a quote from that book, he says, In 2015, composer... Muhammad Farooz wrote, the age of anxiety has given way to the age of cynicism. Among my generation, cynicism is no longer a bad word. It's being celebrated. And it is often mistaken for intelligence. The age of cynicism, cynicism Farooz continues, is where it's better to be wry and distrustful than to be open and trusting. That's kind of a, an ethic that's out there, a part of who we are as a culture. And Christians, uh, Jason Dusen says, should take heed, for we, as those living in the world, are prone to bend toward it. Often the pull towards cynicism is easier to follow than to struggle and to resist. Sarcasm comes too easily. Complaining is default small talk. And despair can mark us more than joy. I think the message of Malachi is important for us because we can lose sight of God and find ourselves living in cynicism. And this whole book is a call to the cynic to wake up and to look to God. And especially as Malachi concludes in this final section, the call here is to wake up and behold God. Now just to remind us a little bit of the context so that we would understand their situation and what tempted them towards cynicism uh, and learn better of their situation so that we can understand and apply it to our situation, just let me review a little bit of history. Malachi is written after the people of God had returned from exile. Uh, that, that happened uh, around the year 500 or so, 500-600 in that time period. And the history before that's important as well, that God had rescued His people out of Egypt. They had become enslaved, they were oppressed, and in a wonderful, glorious way, a powerful way, a decisive way, uh, He demonstrated His love for them and how He rescued them from Egypt and made them His own people. And in that wonderful rescue and His grace in that, He called them to be His special people, to be His treasured possession, to receive His grace and to live in faith and love, and to follow His commandments, which are really just ways that we say, God, we love You, and we say to others, we love You as well. Commandments of God are all about love at the core. And so He called them to walk in that, and things went fairly well um, for a while, uh, for roughly uh, a thousand years maybe at the most. They, uh, they did pretty well. They had this wonderful capital where 
there was this temple and they would worship God and enjoy the, Him there. They would come and gather together. They walked in His ways and, and there was much blessing, but they, uh, over time, rebelled against Him. And after 400 years of really messing up time after time, it really degraded to the point where they were, they were not following God, not believing in God, and even uh, sacrificing their children, their infants, to false gods. So it got that bad. Uh, engaging in, in temple prostitution, it just went way downhill. And it was after many pleas, uh, God in His patience said, okay, you're not responding. I'm going to bring what I promised. They actually had promised in the beginning, if you wander, this is what will happen. And after patiently calling them to repent and them not repenting, He said, here we go. I'm going to exile you. And so He allowed a foreign army to come in to conquer this promised land, to take them into exile. And it would have been just for God just at that point to say, look, I told you, I gave you 400 years of warnings, you didn't listen, let's forget, let's go on to move, move on to plan B, I'm going to go work with some other people group. But in His great love, and this is what God's like, He was still committed to them, and He brought them back from exile. He restored them after 70 years of exile. That's just amazing in world history, that a people group that was totally conquered and totally uh, dispersed would, would come back together, and come back together to the promised land and be restored and that's the context in Malachi's day so they've come back and there's there's wonderful joy but then things get tough and things maybe didn't work out quite how they expected and so amidst their disappointments amidst their difficulties they took their eyes off of God and they started becoming cynical and doubtful and disobedient and Malachi again God in his great mercy sends Malachi to call them back to God to put their eyes back on God and to walk in his ways and that's really what's behind this book. So let's uh, read this section in chapter uh, 3, verses 13 to the end of the book. Uh, it's its own section, but also uh, really covers the theme of the entire book. Let's pray, and then we'll read God's Word. And in this, of course, I want us to hear God calling us out of cynicism to set our eyes on Him and to walk in His way. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You've not left us in our discouragement and in our doubts and in our cynicism. That You care enough for us right here in 2019 in Haverhill, Massachusetts. That You've ordained that this passage would be taught and proclaimed today because You have work to do in our hearts. And we all need to hear You, Lord. Even as I was preparing, I was just so aware of how I need this message. So come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us. and Help me to so teach and explain and proclaim Your Word that I would be useful to You as You care for Your precious people, as You love those who don't yet believe that they would be drawn to Yourself. We look forward to what You're going to do through our time. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 3, starting in verse 13. It says, Your words have been hard against Me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against You? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be Mine says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I, I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. 
then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear My name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of My servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. God's Word from Malachi chapters 3 and 4. What I think this passage and really this whole book teaches us is that it's a call of God to not grow cynical, that God knows what's going on and He will soon wrap all things up. So don't grow cynical. God knows what's going on and will soon wrap all things up. That's what I think it teaches and those are the points. So first, I want to talk about this idea of not growing cynical. We see in chapter 3, verse 13, God says, Your words have been hard against Me. If you turn back earlier in chapter 2, uh, God says that your words have wearied Me. There's a little bit of a difference here. It appears that perhaps they hadn't heeded the earlier calls. And Malachi didn't deliver this book all at once. This is over time. He's making these prophetic statements to God's people and they're called to respond. And this could have been over years. And it appears that they're perhaps not responding to what he said earlier. And, and so God brings correction to them again. But it's a little bit more severe at this point because these words are not just wearying him, but they are actually hard words. They're, they're words that have an edge on them. They're powerfully hurtful and wrong uh, towards God. And that's what he's saying here. That there's, there's an, an aspect of this where it's gone from just things that are like a little bit of a problem over the long haul to things that are really a problem. They've really uh, slid away from God. It's been a downhill slide for them. And now the, their words are hard against the Lord. There's bitter grumbling. They are seeing uh, that that they are seeing things in such a way that they just think God has has left them and doesn't care, and He's even evil. He's doing bad things. Where is this God and the promises He made? That's the sort of the sort of words that they're saying here. They've exchanged faith and hope and love, and and as their eyes would have been on God for doubt and cynicism and compromise. They've wandered away from God and their words now are harsh against God. They've turned from looking to God and putting their faith in Him to blaming God. God is the reason for their problems at this point in their minds. You know That challenge happens in every age. Malachi's age, our age. It happens really in all of our lives at times. It's easy to lose sight of God. It's easy to slide into rather than trusting God and waiting on Him to blaming God. And thinking the reason that my life is so difficult is because God is not good to me. He's not good. He's, he's false and He doesn't withhold His promises. We can slide into hard words as well. We can slide into bitterness and even deep bitterness as we face difficulties. The background is that they're facing some real difficulties. 
They're, they're facing economic challenges. They're facing challenges with their harvests and so forth. There's disease going on. Things are difficult for them. Um, and they're interpreting those things now at this point in a way where they're saying hard words against God. The reality, by the way, is that we all face difficulties. The reality is, is we all face disappointment. God has actually promised in His Word that that's going to happen to everybody. Uh, in Scripture, He teaches that He brings blessing on all people, both those that believe Him and those that don't believe Him and rebel against Him. He brings the rain, though we would want some more sunshine right now for us, but on the, the righteous and the wicked. He brings the sunshine on all. He's good to all. But He also allows difficulties to come on all as well. Nobody's immune from that. They come on both the righteous and the wicked. Both those who run to the Lord and for help and trust in Him and those who rebel against Him. Jesus tells that famous parable about the, house, the two houses built one on the rock and one on the sand. One is on the rock of Jesus Himself. One is built on the sand of life apart from depending on Jesus. But both houses see the rainstorms. Both houses see the floods. And yet the one on the rock stands because it's on stable ground. The one on the sand is swept away. And so there's an aspect of this of just stepping back. We have to recognize that, that life, uh, yes, life is good as the bumper sticker says, but also life is hard. Life is bad. They both happen. They both go on for everybody. And for the people here in, in Malachi and for us at times, they are interpreting the difficulties in such a way that they've lost in losing sight of God. They're blaming Him because their dreams and their hopes have been crushed. They, they know disappointments and difficulties and they've got the better of them. And they're blaming God. So they say, it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So why should we do what we do? Why go through all this difficulty of trying to be faithful to God and, and, and obey His commandments and all this religious stuff? Why do, the, do that when the people who don't do it are doing just as well, if not better? What a waste of time and effort. That's what they're saying. Maybe to make it more contemporary, we would say it's vain to serve God. Why? Why do all this? Why go to church? Why give up one of the only days that I have off to worship God? Why go to small group? Why go to beta? Why be part of these things? I'm too busy. Why should I tithe? Other people don't tithe and they're doing really well financially. Why should I do that? Why all this work? Why all this effort? Even the very worst people out there are doing really well. So why am I doing this thing? God doesn't keep up His end of the deal. I'm not keeping up mine. That's what's being said in Malachi. And that's what I think we say sometimes. Anyone here ever say anything like that? Or think anything like that? I have. This is a common temptation for the believer because for the believer, you are choosing to believe God and follow Him and there's difficulty in life. And there's so much at stake in our choices to live in line with God that if God doesn't exist and if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are to be pitied more than anybody. It doesn't make any sense if God isn't who He is. We are to be pitied. 
And so when we lose sight of God, this lifestyle makes no sense. And this is the bane for believers. To keep on trying to walk in the ways of God when you've lost sight of God Himself. And Malachi is a call to return. It's a call to recognize what goes on in all of our hearts and in all of our mouths at times. We forget who God is. And by the way, God has lots of comfort for us in our disappointments and in our difficulties. The Bible's full of that. But none of it will function for you if you've lost sight of God. If you are cynical. If all you can see in the cloud is the cloud and no silver lining. If you can't see God's activity. And I think it's really important to back up and to recognize that we all have this tendency to actually, maybe subconsciously, if not consciously, kind of sign up for a deal that God never promises. And this is the deal we think we sign up for. It's if I work hard enough to believe, if I work hard enough and I try just enough to obey, then God will bless me. That's the deal we sign up for. And, we, and there may be all sorts of ex expectations of that. And you don't even have to believe in what's called the health and wealth gospel, which says if I believe enough, then I get a lot of wealth and all health. You don't have to go that far to still sign up for this deal because your standard might just be, well, I can deal with some difficulties, but there's just some things. God, you can't touch that one. I've got to be able to you know, have my mental capacity my whole life long. You can't touch that one. I've got to have healthy kids. I've got to have had kids that all believe. I've got to have a good job that pays well. I've got to have this or that. You sign up for the deal. If I believe just enough and do just enough good, then I get this. And God exposes that false deal in our lives one way or the other. He allows things to happen. To expose that we've signed up for something that He never signed us up for. Sociologists, Christian sociologists talk about what's called the therapeutic moralistic deism. Sounds really complex. But it's this idea that that what you believe in, your Christianity is really not about what the Bible says. It's about therapy. It makes you feel good. It's moralistic. So if I do X, then I get Y. And it's deism. It's not a God who enters into our suffering and re redeems us and is with us. It's a God who's distant, has set up this thing, that this deal. I do this, I get that. And they, they talk about this being really characteristic of many of the younger generations. But I think it infects us all. God never signed up us for a deal like that. He actually has something way better than anything we could imagine. He doesn't guarantee blessing, though He gives it. Our lives are full of it. He does give us great things, jobs and health and friendships and all these things. And, and the abundance of these things is really evident in our, in our lives if we stop and look. But He never says you're guaranteed these things. But He does guarantee something for all believers. And this is the deal. He gives us the very best thing we could ever have. Himself. Holy. He gives all of Himself for us. That we might give all of ourselves to Him. And in having Him recognize that, you know what? Whether things go well or not, I'm okay. It's hard. I need comfort. I need strength. But I have Him. And therefore, I know I can get through this. And therefore, I know He's with me. That's the testimony of Scripture. It's all throughout Scripture. 
We read things like in the New Testament, John 17.3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that you believe and you're blessed and the deal works out. No, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. To know me, and that's not just know of me, that's to know me relationally. To know and, and have this relationship with Christ and with God Himself. That's eternal life. And Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and and, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the deal that I I die, but now Christ lives in me. I die to my sin and my old ways to put my faith in Christ. He lives in me. And he says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He gave Himself wholly on that cross for you. He bled. He bore your sins. He paid the just penalty for our sins on the cross. He gave His all. All His righteous life was offered on that cross. That worthy, glorious life was offered. He actually, that deal we were talking about, He had a right to say, I deserve blessing because I've only obeyed. I've only believed. I've only done good. And He said, because I love you, the Father loves you. He loves you. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love you so much. He said, I'm going to offer all that up on the cross to pay for you. So you can be forgiven. And you can now have a relationship with Me. And now you can have Me. I give My whole self to you that you might find your life in Me and that you may give your whole self to Me. That's what He signs us up for when we turn from our sin and trust Him. Now the people in Malachi's day should have known this. It wasn't like you had to wait to the New Testament to understand this. There was enough certainly there, more than enough in the Old Testament. So Psalm 73, a wonderful psalm, they should have known this psalm, is exactly on this topic. You can turn there or you can watch on the overhead. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The same thing we're seeing is going on in the psalmist. And he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. So he's describing what was going on. He had the same cynicism, the same envy, the same sense. Why? What is, what is this all worth? And then he says this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with Your counsel. And afterward, You will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but You? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides You. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength. The strength of my heart and my portion forever. When we find ourselves in that place of cynicism and doubt and discouragement, it's likely because we've lost sight of God and who He is and what He's done for us. He's loved us so much that He gave His only Son for us that we might know Him and we might have Him with us, in us, alongside us all our days, through all the ups and downs, and then when it's time to go to be with Him in glory, free from all sickness and sorrow. And then one day when Christ returns to experience a renewed earth and new bodies and and no more sickness, no more suffering, only eternal joy. This is what we have in Christ. This is the deal that He offers to us through simple faith. 
That's the thing that's amazing. He doesn't say, do enough of this and then you get this. He says, do simply this. Just receive it. Just decide that you don't want life on your own terms anymore. You want to turn from that. You want to recognize your need for forgiveness and you want to just look to Jesus. Look to what Jesus has done for you on the cross. He died and He rose again for you should you receive it. Simply responding in faith and receiving and the deal is yours. He gives you all of Himself. This is so important to get that we have to get our eyes off of ourselves. It's not about, you know, do I get this blessing or that? But I look to God. I have Him. I depend on Him. And when you get that in your Christian life, you'll be able to deal with the other stuff. And that's what the people in Malachi's day had missed. I think it's analogous to actually healthy marriages. What I've found in my own life, in my own marriage, what I've found in counseling others in marriage, that if both spouses come, and they look at each other and say, you owe me this, you owe me this, and that's how they live as a couple, it very rarely will work. Because their eyes are on what you owe me, what deal we signed up for and you have to fulfill. And they both try to kind of draw something from each other, and, and, and it never works. As a matter of fact, it degrades pretty quickly into, you did this to me. You failed to meet my expectations. You did this, and it, it goes into bitterness. And I've seen so many marriages affected by that. But when the, that couple can understand that the call here is not to look to what they're owed, but to ultimately look to God, and then to look to their spouse to what they can give rather than what they can get. And if you have two uh, people in a marriage giving and oriented towards giving, it works. Because now they're oriented to how I can bless you. How can I be a blessing to you within the, the design of God for marriage? And then they start loving each other. They look to the Lord for strength and it works out. The Christian life is that way too. When we get our eyes on the Lord, not ourselves and what we're owed, but that we have Him and we love Him because He's loved us. When we get our eyes there, it makes sense. But if you're all about what I'm owed by God, you'll never be happy because that's not the deal. So let us live in these truths. And let me ask you, do you find yourself in that place of cynicism? And the cure here is to look to God. To put Him at the center to receive that, the fact that He's given Himself wholly to you that you might give yourself and find yourself wholly in Him. It changes everything. So don't be cynical. God knows what's going on. That's our next, next section. Verse 16 of chapter 3 into verse 3 of chapter 4. God is answering them in their cynicism. He's addressing them. And it says that, that those who feared the Lord spoke with one another in verse 16. Do you see it there? Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Now, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Does it mean they were afraid of God? Somehow cringing? No, it's that they revered God. They had held Him in high regard. They thought that He was really good and important and worthy. So they have this, this orientation towards God. They're revering Him. And what do they do? They speak with one another. Interesting. The ones who revere God, they speak with one another. They talk with one another. And what do they say? Well, I think what they say is in the next phrase, um, the, the depending on your translation, it says, um, the Lord paid attention and heard them. But in the, in the original language, it, do, it, it, it says, um, sorry, and the next one, and a book of remembrance was written before Him. So uh, what they, I think they said to one another is that the Lord paid attention and heard us. There's no them in the original language. So the interpreters think, well, maybe it's going to be about the Lord hearing them. But I think what they speak to one another is, the Lord hears us and pays attention. So what they speak to one another is they remind one another that God pays attention and hears us. 
We're not alone. He's for us. And certainly the rest of the passage confirms that, right? Because we see that a book of remembrance is written before Him of those who fear the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be Mine. They are to be My treasured possession. I'm going to spare them. And so God speaks of His regard for those who fear Him. And so they speak to one another of these things. Those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. They encouraged one another. They strengthened one another with this truth. They refused to give in to cynicism. We're not going to go down that pathway. We're not going to complain. We're not going to blame God. We're going to actually remember God for who He is. We're going to set our eyes on God and see Him for who He is. He's a God who's faithful. He's a God who remembers. He's a God who pays attention. He's a God who's involved in our lives. That's the truth of Scripture. That's the truth that we're going to set our sights on. And so they strengthen one another in that. Do you see that there? They speak to one another. They remind one another of these things. They encourage one another. And brothers and sisters, this is so important for us. One of the chief activities of those who fear the Lord, those who set their sights on God, is to remind each other of what He's like. Because we all lose sight of God. We all are tempted towards cynicism. And we need those around us who will remind us that God remembers us. That God is with us and for us. Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need that encouragement. We need to be reminded that God is for us and with us That He remembers what's going on. He's involved. He's near. He's not far. He's totally involved. He's not distant. But He's fully aware of everything and they matter to Him. They matter much to Him. So He's writing a book of remembrance. He's talking about how He thinks about His people. They are to be My treasured possession. They are ones I'm going to spare on the day of judgment. I I look at them with mercy. I treat them as sons and daughters who serve me. They're part of the family. That's what God is saying here in Malachi. He remembers these things. Psalm 56.8 says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Every sorrow that you have experienced in your life, every here, every hardship, every difficulty, every disappointment you've gone through or are going through, He knows fully. And I would say even more fully than you know. And He remembers that. He puts your tears in a bottle, it says in Scripture. When you've forgotten it, it's, it's just history for you. It's not history for God. He remembers what you've gone through. He cares about it. He's compassionate. His heart goes out to you. He's ever-present with His people. That's so important to get. Because that's one of the things that can happen. right? We start thinking God doesn't care and He's distant. And it's, I'm left all alone in my disappointment and difficulty. But no. He'll never forsake you. He's with you always to the end of the age. He sees every sorrow, every difficulty. He's with you in it. He Himself suffered and went through difficulty and disappointment. He understands what it's like. He went through it. Lived it. Offered up His life on the cross to purchase you. He suffered and went through those things so He could understand what it is to be human and fully participate in and help us in Him to overcome. Take heart. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. I've gone through it. 
I know what you're going through. I know what it feels like. And yet I'm with you and I'm for you. That's our God. That's who He is. That's what the Scripture teaches us. That's what the people of Malachi's day needed to see. They needed to set their eyes on who He is indeed. That He's with them and for them. And there was enough in the Old Testament to know these things. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and by the way, that's our next series, 2 Corinthians. He says in chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts. He's a God who's with us and He's for us. He understands our difficulty. And He has set His heart to make us His treasured possession and to spare us. And so much of this section talks about the final day of judgment, that there will be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. There's a final judgment coming where it's going to matter. It's going to matter whether you turned away from the Lord and blamed Him and and didn't trust Him or whether you ran to Him and trusted in Him. Whether you thought it just doesn't matter, I'll just go do my own thing or, or you decided to set your sights on God and to believe His promises and refuse to give in to cynicism. It will matter. There will be a judgment day And those who have set their sights on the Lord and waited for Him will be rewarded. Those who have rebelled will receive their just payment. And so God's orientation to those who would run to Him is to spare them as a son who would serve Him, as it says. He wants to spare them, but to others they will receive judgment. Now that may seem harsh, particularly in our culture, but I think we need to understand some things. That we live in this world is created by God Himself. It's a world full of His glory and goodness all around us. There's plenty of testimony that, of what God's like just by looking at creation, seeing His glory as, as Lisa had shared in those examples in many other ways. The Father loves us and He's blessed us in all these ways. And He's allowed, certainly, this world to have difficulty too. And the, the design of God is in the difficulty and in the blessing that, that those things would lead us to Him. That they would cause us to turn to Him and put our faith in Him. We all live in that reality. It's like we, we find ourselves living in what really is an amazing amusement park. We live in this glorious Disney world crea- called creation. And it's all made by God. And He wants us to enjoy the park. He wants us though to ultimately see He's the one who made the park. And He wants us to have a relationship with Him. And yes, He allows difficulty in that as well that we would turn to Him. But what have we done instead? We've said, ah, there's no, no such thing as the creator of this park. We don't want him. We don't want his ways. And we trash the park and we go our own way. And then in his great mercy, he says, I, I, I love them so much and I'm, I'm whole, committed to holiness and goodness so much that I'm going to send my own son to somehow reach them. And so he sends his son and what does humanity do? What do we do? We, we don't listen to him and we kill him. And so God must in his justice address these things. But even in sending His Son, He's made a way for mercy, for forgiveness and new life. That as we trust in Him, we can be forgiven and we can learn to live in Him in this place and then forever. So He will bring, ultimately bring judgment on the world and all humanity. And we must stand before Him. And the call is to take these things seriously. It's no light thing to turn towards bitterness and cynicism because that will eventually lead you away And you will be judged for your wrong views of God. When He's been so good and He calls us in His Word here in Malachi and elsewhere 
to refuse those lies and refuse those ways and say, Lord, I need You. Sometimes, you know, your prayer isn't, isn't just, Lord, I'm going to not be cynical. It's, Lord, help me in my cynicism. I want to believe. Help me in my unbelief. That's a good prayer. God loves to hear that prayer. Sometimes that's our first step. Just help me out of this. It's not okay to stay there. Think these things matter. He wants us to live and He wants us to know what He's like, that He's with us and that he, he sees us as His people. He wants to make us His treasured possession. The emphasis here isn't, the weight of it isn't so much on the fact that He's bringing judgment, but that He's bringing blessing to those who will choose to fear Him and look to Him and believe what's true about Him. It's a promise here. It's a sober promise though. And I want us to hear that. To recognize that, that these things matter. But we're invited to, to refuse Refuse cynicism and set our sight on God, even if it's just, help me, Lord, in my cynicism. And He comes to bring us life. He comes to bring us true life. And so, don't be cynical. God knows what's going on and He will soon wrap all things up. He's coming back. And that's the latter part here as well. He's coming back and He calls, us, uh, calls the people of Malachi's day in the meantime in verse 4. Of chapter 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Guys, remember my revelation and the law. Remember what I've given you, he's saying to the Old Testament people. That I showed myself in my rescue from Egypt, and I showed myself in commanding you to walk in these ways. So return to these things and live in them. That's what he's saying to them. Refuse cynicism, live by faith, follow this. And then know that I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That I will send a prophet in the time when I'm getting ready to wrap it all up. And He will call you back. And the fathers and sons here is really spiritual fathers and sons. We know that because how it's interpreted in Luke chapter 1. That, that He will send this prophet and He will call them back to the faith of their fathers. And that prophet, ultimately, again, we know from the New Testament, is John the Baptist. He is the Elijah spoken of here. And so the preparation for the final day comes through John the Baptist. The final day is initiated, really, with Christ's coming. And so we live in this time when Christ has come, and so these things, these promises of being His treasured possession and, and of being spared are now realized in Christ through His death and resurrection. And so we live, we live in a time when this has already happened. We, as theologians call our time the Already and not yet. There's already mercy. There's already new life in Him. We live in it now. And our job is to refuse cynicism and live in the reward right now that we are His treasured possession. We are His people. And to so live in that that we model to the world that so desperately needs to hear these things. What this new life looks like. And to tell the world of it. And to be part of spreading this good news throughout the world. Christ has come and He has fulfilled the law and now in Him there's new life, there's forgiveness and the law of the servant Moses is, is expanded to a glorious law of new life, of loving God and loving one another. And we live to proclaim this truth that, that John the Baptist went to prepare the people for of Christ crucified, of freedom, of these, of these promises. It says, but for you who fear My name, earlier in chapter 4, verse 2, you who fear My name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. These things have already happened. The Son has risen. It's Jesus. He's come. And his, 
He's brought His light to shine in the darkness. The light is shining already and shining through His people now. And there's healing in Jesus. By His stripes, we're healed. By His death on the cross, He pays for our sins. He heals us spiritually, ultimately physically as well at the resurrection. And we get tastes of that now. We live in this already and not yet. The sun has risen with healing. And there's joy for us. He says you should go out leaping like calves from the stall. There's joy in the forgiveness and the freedom we have in Christ. We're free in Jesus from sin's chains and sin's control in our lives. There's power in Christ to say no and to live a new life. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what may be working its hold on you, there's freedom in Jesus to break those chains and to live a new life and to grow step by step ever more like Him. Free from sin. Free from its power. Free from its penalty. And one day soon, free from its presence. All these things are ours in Christ. As the band comes up and concludes. So the call here is to set our sight on God. Who He is and what He's done. That's the cure for cynicism. To set our sights on Him and who He is, what He's done, what He's going to do. And just to recognize that He has a plan. He's working things out. Um, I'm sure many of us who are Patriots fans well remember the Falcon Super Bowl. And do you remember where you were and what was going on halfway through the third quarter? That was the point when it was 28-3, to right? It was 28-3, to and I don't know about where you were, but where I was, there was a lot of gloom and doom. We were expecting a blowout. And we should have known better. I don't mean to boast on the Patriots, but we should have known better. It's not over till it's over. Um, there's a lot of gloom and doom. And, and who would have expected the ending? Well, well, I think at times we're like that, like the fans halfway through the third quarter. We see the difficulties, we see the disappointments, and we lose sight. Now, Tom Brady's not God, so the metaphor only goes so far. Just, just wanted to make sure you knew that, okay? Um, but God's in charge. And you might feel like Patriots fans halfway through the third quarter, but God's got a game plan, and He's working it out, and He will conclude it, and there will be victory. And the way you get out of that gloom and doom is to set your sights on who He is. It's not Tom Brady at quarterback. It's the eternal, infinitely glorious and faithful and good God who gives His whole self to us that we might have Him and have life. He's in charge. So set your sight on the Lord and get back in the game. Refuse cynicism and live in Him and live for Him. It will all be well worth it. Let's take a minute before we transition to communion.